Well, this spring and summer, we are in a sermon series titled Resurrected Living, and we look at how Jesus' resurrection from the dead impacts our lives here and now. Today's sermon is titled Resurrected Righteousness, and as we will see, righteousness is our greatest need as human beings. All of us lack righteousness. And thankfully, though, in Christ, God gives us what we need so greatly. The Apostle John, we're looking in 1 John, writes to churches in Asia Minor to remind them of who they are in Christ and to encourage them to walk in righteousness. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm constantly in need of being reminded of who I am in Christ and what it looks like to walk in righteousness. So we'll do that this morning. Our text comes from 1 John, and we're at the end of chapter 2 and verse 28 and going into chapter 3, verse 10. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children... Let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If we want to know God, if we want to know his will, if we want to know his way, we must know his word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word to us. Um, It is both uh, a humbling word as well as an encouraging word. May both of these things uh, happen to your people today. Um, Give us life through them, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, try to imagine what happened to a young British man recently, right about it this past week. 31-year-old Jordan Adlard Rogers, who worked as a low-paid care worker, took a DNA test that proved that he is the sole heir of one of uh, Britain's finest country estates. He went from living paycheck to paycheck in a tiny little flat to moving into this $63 million estate. 
on 1,500 beautiful acres. <laughs> the illegitimate son is now the legitimate heir. He has moved into the estate. And check this out. He is living with his new status as one who fits his new status. He, he was transferred from living paycheck to paycheck for his own needs to living generously towards others. See, he's already set up a charitable trust in order to help two needy uh, communities that are near his estate. It's as if he's been picked up from his old life and dropped into this new life. In our passage, John is saying something similar but more grand has happened to his readers. While they were once far from God, now God has made them new. A new birth has taken place that makes them children of God. Verse 2, beloved, we are God's children now. See, something divine has taken place. John refers to it twice in this text as being born of God or being born of him. John is saying that once you did not know God and your life was patterned after what he calls lawlessness and the practice of sinning, but now God has caused you to be born anew into a new family, the family of God. And instead of practicing sin, you practice righteousness. Just as this British man uh, with his new life as lord of the, the estate began living in his community as a caring lord, so too Christians, because of our new life in Christ, begin living in this world as our Lord, Jesus Christ, would live. And how does John describe this? Well, the word uh, that he uses six times in our passage is the word righteousness. All throughout the passage, he calls his readers to be practicers of righteousness. Because our resurrected Lord lived in righteousness, because he died to make us righteous, and is now resurrected in righteousness, we too have received his righteousness in Christ. And we're to practice this righteousness. That's John's argument. Now, perhaps it would be good to define righteousness. What is Righteousness. Simply put, righteousness is doing what is right and good. Righteousness is doing what God requires. And righteousness is humanity's greatest need. The world is as messed up as our world is because our world lacks righteousness. Righteousness is humanity's greatest need. And righteousness is God's great gift to us in Christ. This is what the cross does for this world. The cross gives us the righteousness that we lack. Listen, the cross, the cross doesn't just give you forgiveness of sin. Yes, on the cross, Jesus takes your sin upon himself. But he also gives you something. And what is that? It's righteousness. That is what the Apostle Paul gets at when he wrote, God made him, listen, that's Jesus, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. On the cross, Jesus takes our sin and he gives us his righteousness. I like how Tim Keller contrasts forgiveness and righteousness. He says, Forgiveness is negative. Righteousness is positive. Forgiveness is, you may go. Righteousness is, you may come. 
on the cross, Jesus took our sin and he gave us his righteousness so that we may become God's children and come to God. And so John instructs us this morning with this important truth. Because the Christian has this new birth into God's family, we are to practice righteousness. We're going to look at that in, under two headings. First, I know it's kind of long, because of who God has made us to be, we are to practice righteousness. And then second, because of who God will one day make us to be, we are to practice righteousness. All right. First, because of who God has made us to be, we are to practice righteousness. The big idea here is this. God has made us to be his children, and because God is righteous, his children are to be those who practice righteousness. Kind of makes sense, doesn't it? In verse 1, John says that the Christian is one who has been given a status of child of God. It's a gift of his grace. Look, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. We don't, we don't earn it. God in his love for us gives us this status. Now, before we go much further, it would be good to address a couple fallacies. And one of them is the fallacy, um, this belief that all people on earth, simply because they are alive, are children of God. Many people in our society, perhaps you, in, you in, in included here, believe that, that they're children of God simply because they are alive. This was a popular belief that came around at the uh, beginning of the 20th century. It's become titled as the universal fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man. And it's true that the Bible does talk in some sense that since we're um, all made by God in his image, in a sense God is a father of all creation, and therefore in some sense God is the father of all who live. But um, what we see pretty clearly in Scripture is that there are actually two families on earth. There's one, there's not just one family tree, there are two family trees. The family tree of God and the family tree of God's enemy. John mentions him, the devil. Now, as soon as Christians mention the devil or Satan, people start rolling their eyes. Many people, most people believe in God, but a smaller percentage believe that God has an enemy or an adversary. But we know he exists. Why? Because Jesus said he exists. Jesus battled against him. He fought against him. The word Satan isn't so much a name as it is a title. It, it simply means the adversary. God has an adversary, a fallen angel, who has his own family tree. Verse 10, John makes it clear that there are these two family trees. Look at verse 10. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. So the proper way to look at it is that there's basically two cosmic family trees. You're either a child of God or a child of the devil. And the difference that we can tell between the two is one practices sinning and the other practices righteousness. Now, there's another fallacy that um, some Christians tend to fall into. Some Christians have come to believe that a Christian is now someone who is free from sin or can no longer sin anymore. And this is one of the passages that they point to. In fact, they point to verse 9. It says, no one born of God uh, makes a practice of sinning. 
Back in St. Louis a number of years ago, I led a high school youth group, and on Sunday mornings, it was a large youth group, so we would break off into grade levels. Each grade had their own little classroom and their own cadre of teachers who would teach. Um, One morning, I decided to sit in with the sophomore class and just to listen in and observe. And for some reason, they didn't teach on the topic they were supposed to teach on from the book of Romans. Instead, instead, this couple read from this passage and then looked at the kids, and this was the application. They said, Christians don't sin. And so if you are someone who sins, you are not a Christian. That is what they said. And you would think you would laugh about that, but in the moment, I'm looking at this boy named Zach who I'd been meeting with for two years, who struggled with the temptation that he often gave into. I had to repeatedly remind him of God's grace towards him and that the Christian life is a battle against sin. And yes, we do sin, but we rest in God's grace. I looked at him and I saw in his eyes that he came to realize it was over for him. This couple had undone God's work of grace in his life with foolish mishandling of Scripture. It broke my heart. Meanwhile, the, the really good kids are going, yes, 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 oh yeah, I can be, I can be this, I can be, yeah, self-righteousness. Afterwards, I pulled the teachers aside and I said, first off, why, why are we not teaching from Romans? We're in Romans right now. And here's what they said, and they thought this would be like my approval would come from this. They said, well, last week you should have been here. Some of the boys were talking, we overheard them, and, and one of the boys one of the boys said a cuss word. And we needed to tell them that Christians don't cuss. I explained that in fact Christians can and do sin and that this passage doesn't say we stop sinning, but rather we no longer pattern our lives after sin. And I said that what we need to be teaching our students is to rest in God's grace. And then they let me have it. They said, this church teaches too much grace. We are done. We're not teaching anymore. Goodbye. (laughs) Problem was, everyone thought they were great people. And people couldn't understand why they left and they put the blame on me. John is not saying that Christians will no longer be tempted to fall into sin. In fact, in chapter 1, if you know this book in the Bible, John says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all what? Unrighteousness. To say that Christians are now free from sin is contrary to what John says earlier in his letter, and it's contrary to the grammar in our text. In the grammar, the verb tense that John uses is is not the kind that says Christians do not sin, but rather Christians do not make a practice of sinning. It's a subtle nuance, but it's important. The verb tense is present continuous. It describes an ongoing pattern. The Christian life is no longer patterned by an attitude that runs into sinning. 
For the unbeliever, sin is habitual. For the Christian, righteousness is habitual. This past Easter, our children did this craft where they made this little habitat for a caterpillar. And, um, and they, we had lots of caterpillars this year. We got an extra shipment. So I think it was a lot of fun. And so the kids got to bring these caterpillars home. And, and what a wonderful transformation that is to see a caterpillar crawl into a cocoon and come out a butterfly. But I think we'll all agree, unless they're part of the caterpillar society of America, that caterpillar is an ugly leaf eater that struggles to move on dozens of legs, whereas a butterfly is majestic. It flies upon beautiful colored wings. Caterpillars eat bitter green leaves. Butterflies feast on sweet nectar. My friends, the point that John is making is this. God has, listen, God has made you to be born new into an, a new type of creature. Whereas you used to be happy to feed on the bitter leaves of sin, now you desire the sweet nectar of righteousness. Not that you can't at time go back to that old bitter leaf. But is it not true your ultimate desire and longing is righteousness, Right? John is saying, if you don't have that longing, then you're, you're not a child of God. Some of you need to process that this morning. Perhaps you're really not a child of God. There's no longing for the joy of righteousness. Now, that's what John is getting at. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. Now, he easily could have said, no one who is reborn as a butterfly makes a practice of eating bitter green leaves anymore. My friend, John wants those dearly loved children with whom he's writing to understand what God has done for them. This is God's work to do this in your life. It's the lavish love of God. It's the gift of God to make you his child, to give you this new, this new um, appetite in your life. The commentators on this passage, they all point that this language in verse 1 is really one of astonishment. John says, see, behold, see what kind of love this Father has given to us. John wants us to take a moment to be amazed that God would do this. We don't deserve this. We're not righteous. We deserve condemnation. And yet God in his grace gives us this new birth that brings us into this new reality. John wants us to marvel at God's grace. And the more we marvel at God's grace towards us, the more we love him and the more we desire to honor him with our lives. This is the motivation I wanted my students in that Sunday school class to have. Because of who God has made us to be in the grace in which we now live and walk and enjoy. Of course we're going to be practicers of righteousness. We've been made for this. I found that the more I marvel at God's ongoing grace towards me, the more I want to be holy, not less. How about you? May God's grace always be our motivation. How much are you here this morning? Perhaps you're here 
and you're feeling perhaps a little bit of an outsider. You know, you hear this talk of a new birth. You hear about God having a family. You feel on the outside, you wish you were in. What are you to do? I think John would say, turn in faith towards Christ. That's the proper response when we see that we lack righteousness and God gives it to us in Christ. The proper response is to receive righteousness from him. The proper sense isn't to just say, well, I'm going to be a better person. I'm going to try to stop sinning. That's impossible. You need a new nature. You need a new birth. And that is, the, that is ultimately the work of a sovereign God. And so in some sense, you can't like wish it upon yourself, right? But then you can do what's necessary to experience this new birth. You can't give it to you. God sovereignly gives it to you. But you can, in faith, come to Christ. Ask him to take your sin. And he will give you his righteousness. See, everyone who has been born of God has done that. So so do that. But what if you are a believer? What's our application? I think we find it in verse 28 and a little bit further down. We are to abide in Christ. Look at verse 28. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. The John who wrote this is the same John who wrote the Gospel of John. In the Gospel of John, John recounts a time when Jesus said to, to come and abide in him. I'm, let me just give you part of that. It's from John chapter 15. Jesus said, these are his words to his followers, abide in me. And I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Some of you know that all too well, right, Christian? Apart from me, you can do nothing. And for a season, you were apart from him, and you experienced that nothing. But then for you, the call is still there. Come, abide in me. The mercy is there. What does it look like to abide in Christ? One, it means we're connected to him. Two, it means we're drawing our life out of him. And three, the byproduct of being connected to Christ and drawing life out of him is the fruit of righteousness. How could you not be connected to Christ in prayer and adoration and reading of Scripture and daily just walking in His presence? How can you not be connected to Christ and draw from Him and not become who Christ is, righteous and good? That is why we're called to abide in Christ. If you feel like you've strayed from Christ, if you sense that you've been abiding in other things other than Christ, cheer up because His call to you to abide in Him remains true. Each and every day of your life, no matter how far you've strayed. So let us do that. May we marvel anew at the word, see what kind of love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. That's our first of two points. The second one will go a little quicker, but what we've seen here is because of who God has made us to be, we are to practice righteousness. We are God's children. And as our Heavenly Father is righteous, so too we are to be a people who practice righteousness. As we abide in Christ, these things happen for us. The second point is this. 
Because of who God will one day make us to be, we are to practice righteousness. There is a future reality for all of God's children. Because all of God's children one day be glorious, as the resurrected Christ is glorious, we are to be a people today who live in light of that future goodness. If you knew at a young age you were going to be a world-renowned concert pianist, would you not live today in light of that hope to come? Would you not put into practice today what is good and right so that on that later day you would not be ashamed when you play at Carnegie Hall? I think most of us would put into practice today the right things because we have this hope. This is the argument that John makes in verses 2 and 3. He says, Beloved, we are God's children now, okay, now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And then based on that logic, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself. As he is pure. John says that we have a hope of one day being beautifully righteous and good and pure like Jesus. There's a day coming when we will be like him. And because that day is coming, because we have the hope of that day, we live today with that future reality. It changes how we live. You know, we're in this series titled Resurrected Living, so we cannot help but keep looking uh, to the future with hope and with great joy. Just as Christ is risen from the dead and now reigns in heaven in beautiful glory, there's angels all around him throwing up praise after praise. That's how glorious and beautiful his resurrected body is. Just as Christ is risen from the dead, so too we who belong to Christ will one day rise in glory as when he appears, as he returns. Jesus resurrected from the grave, and he promised there would be a resurrection for all who follow after him. We are awaiting that time. Christ will appear again. He's going to remove all the effects of the evil one upon this earth. And when he does this, This planet, this universe, will be resurrected itself in perfection. Heaven will come down to earth. John wrote another book, Revelation. You could read that, chapters 21 and 22. But in our text, John uses the phrase, when he appears, uses it twice. Verse 28, so that when he appears, we may have confidence. Verse 2, We are God's children now, but what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Christian John is saying that we share a hope. Christ will appear again. And when he appears, we shall be like him. We shall see him as he is. And and how is Jesus right now? When Jesus first walked the earth, he came as God in the flesh, but his glory was veiled. It was hidden And most of humanity missed it, that Jesus is truly divine Son of God. But now Jesus is resurrected in glory, and nothing is veiled. You know, the disciple John who wrote this got a glimpse of that one day. Remember, he he and his brother James and Peter, Jesus said, why don't you come with me? And they went up on this mountain. He says, I'm going to show you just a glimpse of what's coming. 
Why? Because a glimpse of what's coming can help us live today in perseverance until that day. He gave him a glimpse, and Jesus changed in the instant. He was transfigured. He couldn't even begin to describe him other than it was just it was so beautifully white and flowing and glowing. They didn't even know what to do. Jesus' body shone like a bright light, pure and powerful. You know, there's something about Jesus' resurrected body that will be familiar to us. Arms and legs and head, and he's got, I think he's got ten toes, you know. So um, he still bears the scars from being crucified and from being pierced with a spear on our behalf. And yet, there is something about Jesus' body that is more sci-fi-like, you know. He's able to go through rooms and move around and teleport, ah. Something about his resurrected body is like ours, but far different. If you want to read more about that, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, go read that. Just a couple words from Paul there. Here's what Paul writes. First he says, just, he says, what is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. And Paul writes, just as we have been born, the, as we have borne the image of the man of dust, referring to Adam, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. If you're in Christ, then when, when Christ returns, when he appears, you will be transformed in an instant in ways in which our minds cannot fully comprehend right now. Your earthly, fleshly, still capable of sinning and dying body will in an instant be transformed into a glorious, divine-like body of Christ in heaven. And from that time forth, you will be unleashed into this new reality of perfect righteousness for all eternity. The perfect righteousness that Christ has for you will then fully engulf you. For now, we know that such a thing exists. It's been somewhat talked about in Scripture. But we're kind of like a child who's born blind, who has heard of such a thing as eyesight and seeing, but has never seen yet. So shall it be when it comes to this righteousness, this full installment of this new life that Christ has for us. We know that such things as perfect righteousness exist, but we've never lived in it. We're living blind right now as to the glory that's going to come upon us in that age to come. And guess what? Check your own self here. We We probably don't even think we're missing much right now. But on that day when Christ appears and he makes you to be like him, you will burst forth in tears of joy and your lips will sing praise to God and you will say, this, this is what I was made to experience. My eldest daughter, Grace, ordered a prom dress online. And online, they look pretty nice. They seem pretty appealing. But when, she, when it arrived, and when she tried it on, oh my word, it was beautiful. She was beautiful. It's as if this, she was made to wear that dress. My friends, the righteousness that we long for, that seems to be so elusive in this present age, will come upon us in a fullness 
in the age to come when Christ appears. And it will feel so good. It'll be as if you were made for it. And you have been. John, my friends, he's saying that that this hope changes how we live now, or at least it should. We're to live differently in light of what's to come. Sorry, I get a little excited about this. John says that everyone who thus hopes purifies himself as he is pure. I mean, the argument is really simple. Jesus is pure and righteous and glorious, and one day we will fully experience that. So let us live in light of that today. Let us not go back to the bitter green leaves of sin. How could we? We've tasted this nectar. So let us be a people who understand God's timeline. Once we were not God's children, now we are God's children. But who God is making us to be has not yet appeared. There is a a future grace. There's a future glory. There's a future transformation coming your way. Because Because of who God has made us to be, we're to practice righteousness. Because of God will one day make us to be who we are to be, we are to practice righteousness. May we lay hold of this truth. May we stand firm in our rejection of the bitter green leaf of practice of sin. May we delight only in the sweet nectar of the practice of righteousness. May we abide in Christ so that he may bear in us the fruit of righteousness today. While we long for the fullness of the righteousness that is to be ours when it appears. My friends. Be astonished. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. Let's pray. Father, why is it that every time we open up Scripture, uh, your glory is seen more and more fully? Why? Because you are a glorious God and your word reveals that to us. And because you love us and you want us to experience these truths so that we may not just know them, but walk in them and hope in them. May we be a people of great hope. May we be those who love the nectar of righteousness. And when we struggle, when we fall, we come back and abide in Christ and rest in that grace. Until that day when when you, Christ, return, may we Strive for righteousness. Amen.